Welcome to the 66th episode of the Rewilding Earth podcast. In this episode, our own Kim Crumbo, Wildlands Coordinator for Rewilding Institute, clarifies how the conservation community must lean into the 30 by 30 campaign. He reminds us, while we have a friendly administration, we still have much work to do. And the Rewilding Institute is ready to provide the on-the-ground plan for protecting at least 30% land and water by 2030 for North America. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. The Rewilding Earth Podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. As the Rewilding Institute's Wildlands Coordinator, Kim Crumbo leads our efforts to restore native carnivores to their rightful place on landscapes across the West. He works closely with diverse conservation partners and regional coalitions to engage scientists, communities, and elected leaders in the effort to secure species recovery and public support for wolves, bears, lynx, cougars, and other native carnivores. Kim served 20 years with the National Park Service in Grand Canyon, first as a river ranger and later as wilderness coordinator. He also worked as a river guide for a decade as Utah Wilderness Coordinator for the Sierra Club for two years. Beginning in 2000, Kim assumed various roles with Grand Canyon Wildlands Council, including a stint as the Northern Representative for the Arizona Wilderness Coalition. Before working on rivers and wilderness activism, he spent four years with the Navy SEALs Team 1, completing two combat deployments in Vietnam. You were here as a Rewilding Leadership Council member, I believe, the first time we talked, and now you've picked up a couple of new titles. Board member and... Well, it's... uh... I'm called a lot of things, but wildlands <laughs> coordinator is probably the one I prefer. So. so you've taken on, in short, a more active role, uh, big time with rewilding and um, a lot of different projects that you've been working on uh, right away, just hit the ground running. You're a massive resource to rewilding and the conservation community. And I think that's why everybody was really excited to see you step into the new roles among your martini making skills. <laughs> You know, well, not... competition with Foreman on that one. So. Right, right. The thing about Rewilding Institute is it's, for, for me, it's an ideal environment because it, we're open to ideas, new ideas and things, but it's also, you're, you know, people have conversations about those things. So it's not, you know, I've been involved with Sierra Club, which is this giant black hole that you, you know, throw ideas into. And, no, it's just, to me, it's just been a real positive, positive change. For everyone. I've, I've uh, taken a little census and, and everyone is uh, equally uh, happy that you are here and doing this. And one of the things that you're working on, um, we have, we are part of um, a coalition uh, uh, for 30 by 30. Do you want to talk about that first off as we go through the things that you're involved with, at least with uh, Rewilding North America and our campaign ahead? Well, the whole 30 by 30 uh idea, you know, stems from the uh, half-earth concept that uh, actually Reed Noss and Foreman and others 
but fortunately, you know, Wilson, you know, picked up on that, made it kind of a national, international uh, effort. But, you know, we've been involved in that for a long time. When you really think about, it means 30% of the earth protected by 2030 and 50% protected 2050. And what do you mean, first of all, what do we mean by protected? And that becomes an issue that you really have to spend some time on. There's some uh, ideas about that. I think a lot of the uh, discussion, at least in the United States, has to do with what's called gap one, gap two. There's other classifications, but gap one is essentially wilderness areas and gap two are the other areas that are reasonably well protected. But uh, there's an international, International Union of uh, Conservation of Nature has their own criteria as well. And they're very compatible. You know, what do we really mean? And it's, there's a consensus that of that 30% and ultimately of that half percent, at least 10% of all that has to be strictly protected, which would imply, you know, wilderness happens to be one of the stricter uh, designations. So you got to figure out how do we go about doing that? Yeah, there's a lot of, like you said, a lot of definitions um, forming on more than one recent uh, board and staff meeting uh, brought up the idea that there's a lot of talk out there, a lot of interest, a lot of energy around this idea of, I mean, it goes all the way to Biden's uh, new administration um, and you'd all introducing a 30 by 30 initiative, right? But what Foreman likes to talk about is that there's, while there's a lot of interest, there are very few people out there saying what really constitutes protection and how a network actually gets put together of wildlands with corridors. And you just recently wrote at rewilding.org, um, wildlife corridors, goals and objectives, and really trying to define or redefining where we had already defined uh, Foreman and, and Sule and Nas at all. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Like, how do we set this upcoming standard that makes it a little bit more meat on the bone when people are talking about 30 by 30 and what it really means on the ground? The advantage to kind of sitting back and seeing what's going on, you realize that the, the by the Biden administration embracing that idea, that gives us a lot of traction, a lot of opportunity. Now, there is some debate what protected means. So that gives us the an additional opportunity to enter into those discussions. And, you know, we've given it a lot of thought. It's sometimes you just have to keep saying it over and over and over again. And finally, it's sort of like wildlife corridors, you know, finally it started resonating and it, it takes off. And of course, you know, when you're a small group like us, you got these great ideas and then there's always the bigger guys that uh, want to take credit for it. But, you know, really that's what we're trying to get going because they have a tremendous outreach uh they're real clunky in terms of in terms of new ideas but uh they're fairly effective in getting the word out and we're talking not not only nationally but globally in terms yeah. of pushing this idea so a lot of room for discussion i think we're giving it a lot of thought and i think we need to get that message out uh, what do you like to refer to so that people can get an idea of what maybe more of a completed, if not a completed, but a more completed rewilding network looks like so they can see what maybe the future is going to look like. Well, 
been involved with the well the southern utah wilderness alliance is currently in, you know demonstrating if they've got some papers that they're ready to release that show that uh, the areas that are part of the american america's red rock wilderness act uh, really contributes to the total amount of protected areas within utah uh, when you really look at the areas that, that are designated wilderness or that qualify for wilderness, you're looking up around, you know, 15, 20% of the state, not 30%. Uh, but what they have done, the SUA approached us with the, you know, they've been working on protecting these areas, about 9 million acres for wilderness, but it, it has dawned on everybody that you have to connect those. So that's where they asked us to step in and provide some uh, uh, background information, some ideas about what constitutes connectivity. And there's been a lot of work from like Carlos Carroll and Sule and, and others that have uh, pointed out areas that have already been demonstrated through computer modeling and then some on, on the ground effort that these are areas that would qualify as wildlife corridors that connect these protected areas, not only on a state basis, basis but uh, on a regional and uh, actually international level, like Yellowstone to Yukon, or ours, you know, the, from uh, New from Mexico up to the Yukon, those types of things. So it's gaining traction, and largely through people finally realizing this is a great idea, and let's go with it. So. So that uh, that effort within Utah right now is one that we're just kind of wrapping up, and Sue is getting ready to uh, release that those that uh, those papers that report. It's kind of exciting to be on the front lines of this and find yourself after how many administrations have you? <laughs> I won't put you on the spot. I know that you're you're in your fifties or so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, but I mean, after all of the all of the unfriendly administrations that you've been through doing conservation all of these years, what's it feel like to have one that's taking, in some senses, your your work the most seriously that it's ever been? I mean, we've never had anything close to an administration saying, "Yeah, that thirty thirty thing sounds great." It's been a long time coming, but there have been inroads all along. I'd say, with the exception of the Trump administration, who already made this such a critical issue by ignoring it that uh, I think we're finally to a point where we've got to do something. We just can't talk about it and think about it. We've just got to start the action now. And I think that's been helpful. Like I, you know, I've said before, you know, we elect a president, not our fairy godmother. And I think we got made a lot of progress uh, during Obama's administration. He came in, you know, this was not on his, you know, something he was aware of, but ultimately, became aware of the necessity of protecting areas. But there's been a lot of effort made over the years uh, that have contributed, that have resulted in where we are now. So let's not uh, uh, discredit that, but let's go with the, what the options we have now. It's up to us to make this happen. Uh, history has sort of been on our side, but time is not. And uh, there's just a lot of good people involved in this, a lot of dedicated people that make, will make this happen. Uh, I believe. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Did you know we also publish insightful and inspirational content from leading rewilding scholars, poets, artists, and organizers from around the world? 
You can visit rewilding.org and sign up for our weekly digest to receive brilliant, fresh insights on everything rewilding. You'll find over a decade of articles and news from the front lines of wildlands protection and all kinds of restoration efforts. Check us out at rewilding.org and don't forget to share it with friends. Other news, I mean, there's a lot of really actually good news coming out. In fact, you just shared an article with us uh, this morning via email on the National Geographic story of the 10 good things that have happened. Among those 10, um, we're used to hearing such bad news and it doesn't mean that the bad news goes away, but it does help to balance a bit. The um, Colorado wolf reintroduction is on. And that was one of the things that National Geographic highlighted as their uh, top 10 conservation victories of this year. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah, it was a major, major accomplishment. And to the folks that have been working on it in Colorado, there's a, a, a coalition. It was Rocky Mountain Wolf Project and a lot of affiliates, including the Defenders of Wildlife and the, the, uh, the Colorado chapter for the Sierra Club and a lot of others that made this happen. It's now the work, real work begins because one is that they've got to get wolves on the ground within the next couple of years. Before the governor, you know, before the election comes up, we may get another Nazi in there. But right now we've got an ideal political situation to make progress on this. So, yeah, it's great, but we've got a lot of work ahead of us. And there's a lot of good people involved in that effort. So. You work with Dave Parsons, also on our board, and he had worked an awful lot uh, with the Mexican wolf recovery uh, we know what's probably ahead. We've been here before. We've gotten wolves on the ground before. Just because that happened, and it was an in immense, enormous amount of work to make it happen, did not mean that everything was, nobody wa waved a wand over the Gila and uh, Southern Arizona and made everything okay. The problems in some sense only just began. What can we learn from that? going forward or what would you like people to have learned from that going forward and maybe making the reintroduction in Colorado better? The reintroduction in Colorado is tied to the reintroduction of wolf, Mexican wolves. You know, there's the issues that overlap. One of the things that we've done is uh, this impatient patience. You know, we got to get things done. You know, there comes a point where, you know, you just can't wait for the good to happen. And there's some lawsuits involved in terms of that Dave Parsons and others are involved in to get the Fish and Wildlife Service to remove that boundary between uh, Mexican wolf populations and the rest of the world. Uh, we had a very good science panel involved with the, the Fish and Wildlife Service's uh, recovery team that made recommendations for three recovery areas in the United States. Those are the only areas that we, can, we have any control over. One of them was the current area where the Mexican wolves are inhabiting. The other one was the Grand Canyon ecoregion, which includes Northern Arizona and Southern Utah. And one of the others was Colorado in the San Juan Mountains. So we have to make sure that we continue to press for uh, recovering those areas. And we do have a lawsuit that may resolve that, that, that one boundary issue. But we have to be very careful in terms of political situation, in terms of uh, particularly uh, Southern Colorado. We wanna make sure that we're facilitating wolf recovery without jeopardizing Mexican wolf recovery. And that's something that we're, we're working on. That's where people like Dave Parsons and, uh, and, uh, and others are very aware of it. We really gotta make this work. What are some ways that 
this push for the reintroduction in Colorado could help the Mexican wolf situation where there's still, there's been pretty much relentless pressure applied to those wolves with illegal shootings and uh, the, 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 uh, the other side <laughs> uh, always wreaking havoc in that. And also from within um, the agency, some decisions made here and there that didn't really help the reintroduction to continue to grow the way it was uh, intended. Could the Colorado, could this turning of the tide help with the Mexican wolf re uh, recovery? Well, sure. And one of the things that was with this uh, recovery effort was the pa passage of the ballot, ballot measure that allowed for this to happen. Now, we're well aware of that the Trump administration and previous administrations have uh, uh, tried to delist the wolf nationwide. And now we were looking at uh, in early January, where in fact the wolf, the gray wolf will be delisted nationwide. We're there's litigation involved in that. Uh, there's efforts to work with the Biden administration to reverse that decision, but uh, we have to do that. It has, the wolf has to be protected under federal law for this to work. Now, what they've done in Colorado is that kind of, they've got their own state effort going, regardless of how this overall delisting works. Mexican wolves are, listed, are protected under the uh, Endangered Species Act. And we must have to make sure that they remain protected under that act. There has to be consequences for the illegal killings. Uh, there has to be consequences for the agencies to fail to live up to the, the laws and policies that require them to do just that, to recover that species. That's our job to make sure that they're aware of it and make sure that happens. And when they don't, we see their asses. Mm -hmm. I remember uh, working with the Forest Service. I can't remember what, it was a roads issue um, way back in the 90s uh, with Sky Island Alliance and uh, a Forest Service official, you know, we were, I was trying to understand how you work with the government. I was pretty green, you know, back then. And um, I thought you just asked them or I thought you showed up to, uh, you know, a public hearing or something and, and, a vote was taken or something. We're going to do this now. And basically the forest service official told me, you got to sue us if you want anything to get done. And that's when I first heard that whole thing was like, we don't move in any direction until you sue us. We don't look at something that you want us to look at or, or do anything officially without. And it blew my mind. I'm like, he's just, he, he's asking to be sued. I, I've never heard of that before. <laughs> well, you know, I worked for the park service for 20 years. And uh, it's a pretty good agency, but I can't say that there weren't times when I was just livid with the, you know, the decisions that were made. But my role there was to point out the laws and policies regarding management of the park and particularly wilderness and proposed wilderness areas. And I just delighted in being a real pain in their ass by constantly pointing that out. But there are some really good people in all those agencies. And uh, that's kind of what saved us from Trump, you know? Yeah. But uh, you really do have to be insistent. You have to stay engaged. You have to be respectful because there's a lot of good folks working there hard to do, make the right decision. So you have to engage in that. You just have to be involved in it and uh, call their bullshit when there's bullshit. Uh, 
when they need to be reminded, do that. Uh, when they need to get some bad press, make sure that happens. When they get, deserve some good press, make sure that happens. And when they totally blow it, sue their asses. So, yeah, hard feelings. But this is, it's a country that's based on, in theory, the rule of law. And we keep the good laws on the books and make sure they're enforced. It's good to have people who have been there and done that. Um and know what to do in these situations where uh, things get dicey. And, and uh, at the time, I would have been no help to anyone if anyone looked at me and said, what do we do? Now, I don't know that much more, but I have people like you I can point to. Well, ask him. I don't know. Kim will know. <laughs> well, that's, that's what we need. Our, our networks of protected lands, but our networks of people. And that was what Michael Soule and Foreman and a lot of other folks were really emphasizing. There ain't no home plate in this, you know. We've, we're we're somewhere between first and second, you know, and uh, and we, we keep on doing it. In job security. I put something in a note to Dave not too long ago about uh, we need to declare when Rewilding Institute is going out of business. Like, what will the last thing be? Uh, just kind of as a joke, because who who would know that? Uh, we can't, you know, you can't pin it to anything because you never know what people are going to pull as they get more desperate. Um, the people who panic about what does 30 by 30 or 50 by 50 mean uh, for me as an oil exec or, or a landowner or something like that. I'm not sure that I'm seeing an awful lot of pushback. Maybe you are this early. Uh, do you think they're not taking it very seriously? It seems like this should be very shocking compared to the things that they've been shocked about in the past that are we're small potatoes by comparison. No, it is having an impact. You know, I think the probably the most positive impact is Trump losing the election. And, uh, but a lot of the oil companies, you know, groups like the Sierra Club and Defenders and NRDC have really put pressure on banks not to promote, not to fund a lot of these uh, drilling operations. And even Exxon admitted that you know the the time schedule for fossil fuels is on the horizon to end that so it was a lot of related efforts based on a lot of past uh, efforts and you know the work that's been going on with the protecting the arctic and uh, all those things goes back goes back decades mm. so now we have the opportunity to do something about it but uh, again it's not going to happen on its own fortunately we have an administration that's very positive and uh, about achieving those goals, but there's still a lot of work to be done. Yeah. Always but I think we do have a, a timeline in terms of when we rewilding should be de, uh, disbanded. And I think it has to do with the sun engulfing the planet Earth and all life and things in a couple of billion years down the road. So I, that's a, a definite hard boundary, I'd say. But timeline well, is kind of. Thank you to all of our monthly uh, uh, supporters for uh, continuing for the next billion years. We really appreciate you guys. Don't turn off your subscriptions. Thank you. One of the issues also that you're working on is wild horses. Can you tell us, and that was, didn't you do an article on that as well? Sure. Yeah, it's a really complicated issue, but, uh, and it really gets people fired up, which is kind of fun to watch, but uh, <laughs> I like horses, you know. I don't have one, but uh, you know, horses have played such an important role in civilization, and they were, you know, they did evolve here in North America, uh, but they've always been part of an ecosystem somewhere. When they brought them back here, you know, 
they'd already gone through a lot of evolutionary uh, processes based on what we thought horses should be. So, but you do have quite a few horses on designated areas and they're federally protected, the area of the horses are, and they're, they're causing problems, problems in the sense of impact on the environment. Cattle grazing is by far the major impact, but I think there's a way out where we can actually make this work so that they can still, you know, have wild horses out there on the range because they are, they are impressive and we can uh, develop management strategies so that the impacts are however you define acceptable, but it requires a major reduction in number of population of, uh, uh, in the population of wild horses. And that has to be done in a manner that's acceptable to uh, decent human beings. So it's, it's a involved process with a lot of players, but I think ultimately we'll come up with some uh, good solutions, but a lot of it depends upon getting livestock out of the areas that have been set aside for horses, getting the native predator predators back in play. You know, uh, there's going to be a lot of active intervention required on, on part of managers, but I think it's doable. And one thing that's I've been pointing out is that uh, they're probably better off on the Great Plains. So let's just start thinking about exploring that option. Do you think it's it gets better? Like give people a vision in, in your mind of what it looks like in the future when we have an issue like the wild horse issue, how much better it would be to deal with it then when we have the room and to breathe, then now where issues like that might be a lot more complicated and harder to deal with, just because you're talking about well, one of the things that would be great to get rid of is the hardest thing in the world to get rid of in the West, which is cattle grazing, at least on public lands. Yeah, yeah, and that's the challenge. But the thing is, there's a lot of good people that are very dedicated and interested in this issue. And, but you have, to, you have to engage with them to come up with a solution. Do we want to win the ideological battle or do we want to have healthy ecosystems with wild horses present? And that's, I think that's a goal we can agree on, I believe. But you want to harness the energy, the tremendous energy that loves wildlife and loves horses in particular and do it in a manner that we actually achieve those results. And uh, sometimes I think that we're actually dealing with uh, rational human beings when you start talking to these folks. So Kim, thank you so much. I know we're going to be hearing a lot more from you as the year progresses. Everyone can uh, keep up with your work on uh, rewilding.org and make sure that you sign up for our uh, newsletter so that you can get our weekly updates on everything that was published that week. Kim, thank you so much for being with us today again. It's a, always a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org slash pod. That's rewilding.org slash pod.